So we come tonight to the final picture of the last of the six cycles of visions in Revelation. As we get to the penultimate picture of judgment with the great white throne judgment. This is the central picture of judgment in Revelation. Though we have already seen these pictures of judgment over and over and over again. But like it has done in all of its cases, the sixth cycle here in the millennial vision of Revelation 20 lays out for us the penultimate picture of what we are to see, the fullest picture of understanding what this day of judgment will be like. It is to shed greater light on what we've already saw back in Revelation 11. Revelation 11 verse 18 The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So we've already seen this same picture of judgment, but now John gets the final picture. The picture where everything, and most importantly, the final enemy of all, death, is judged, and defeated. Saints are rewarded. Unbelievers are judged. So let's look now at the great white throne judgment, verse 11 through 15 of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the ultimate picture. The final moment of history as we know it is this moment of the, th- of the white throne judgment. This is history's consummating point. From where this point ends, history ends, and from the point after, it's all eternity. This is the consummating moment of human history, as we know it. And that moment is the moment where every human being who has ever lived, will stand before their king. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on this day and this moment. The first thing we see from the text is a, the vision of the perfect judge. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The great white throne is simply the picture of the fact that it is the mightiest of thrones. 
the great throne. There is no other thrones which are like this one, for it alone bears the King of kings and Lord of lords. The picture of white denotes the holiness of the one who sits on it, plus the victory of the one who sits on it. So this is one who has all victory, all holiness, all purity, and it is a throne above all thrones. Within this, we get images that we've already talked about. Images from Daniel chapter 7, where we read, Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the air of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Do you notice when you look at fire, the more like heat that is added to it, the more powerful the flame grows. The, the flame literally turns white itself. And that's a picture here. The, the picture is that the power and the ferocity is so powerful, so perfect, that it is seen as a, a blazing torch of pure whiteness to which man without, un, without uh, unchanged eyes could not look upon without being consumed. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 26 to 28 and above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. One of the things that I, I really dislike about pictures of heavenly images is one, they're wrong. But two, the reason they're wrong. And the reason that they're wrong is because they will always give you a less than image of what is. You shall make no graven image of the things which are in heaven. Why? Because you can't. Your puny brain can never get there. You could put all of the greatest artists and sculptures and painters of the Renaissance throughout all of modern history, put them together. They could not touch an inkling of the glory of what it will be. And so that's the danger of language in one sense is that it's just the best that we can do. So when it says a great white throne, and there's fire everywhere, and there's glory, and there's flames, this is the best that poor John can do for us when he sees the magnitude of it. But it is power and holiness and brightness and glory that we cannot fathom. There will, no, there will no longer be stars and a sun. There will just be glory. And it will be brighter than as if we were to be parked right next to the sun itself. And if we were not protected by the, the, the glory and immense power of God in that moment, we would be burnt up in an instant. And so... As, as those images swell up in your heart of the realities of power of this throne and the one who sits upon it. 
know that it won't touch it. It cannot touch. Whatever image you have fathomed up in your mind, it's not enough. It's not enough of what will be. In that moment when we sit before and stand before and kneel before the King of glory. We've already gotten images of it in Revelation 1, 4, and 5. And what's fascinating about who is the one on the throne, right? Throughout Revelation, we've seen both the Father is the one on the throne, but also the Son. But what's interesting about that is when we look at the images of the one sitting on the throne in Revelations 1 and Revelations 4 and 5 and elsewhere, we get images of the Ancient of Days mixed in with images of the Son of Man. Now, now why is that? It's because we, as we look through the Son, we see the Father. So, so who is on the throne? Is it the Father's Son? The answer is yes. Yes. The Son sits upon the throne executing the judgment and will of His Father. And as you behold the corporeal, the glorified being, which is the Son of God, the King of kings, as you look through Him, you will behold both the glory of the Father and the Spirit. Yet you will know absolutely with utter perfection the distinguishing between the persons. We know that it must be the Son who is the one who judges, for He tells us Himself. In John chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So who is it that will be the ultimate judge? It's Jesus. Jesus will be the judge. And why shouldn't He be? He is the standard by which all men will be measured by. Jesus is the standard. Isn't it amazing that the standard is the judge and the judge is the standard? This is what makes His judgment so perfect. No other judge in this world can bear that kind of reality, but Jesus can. That's what makes Him the perfect judge. Paul said to the Areopagus in Acts 17, 31, Because He, that is God the Father, has fixed the day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. He's talking about Christ there. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So here, the King of glory, the High King of heaven, now sits in full glory upon an immense throne that is beyond all comprehension of its glory and power. And He sits ready to judge. And in light of His coming, in light of the power of His might in establishing His throne, we are told that as His presence comes, all the earth and the sky will, fl- will flee away and no place was found for them. The earth and sky will literally flee from His presence. Why? What is going on here? The answer is, right? The earth and the skies retreat from the presence of the Holy One is a clear picture that they have been defiled and tainted by human sin. They can't stand in the presence of God. So literally all of creation 
retreats, it flees from. And this is setting the stage for the new heavens and new earth. All of this retreats. It is an immense moment of that coming when Christ returns in His second coming. The absolute cosmic collision and collapse that will take place is beyond all comprehension. The flood cannot touch what will happen when Christ comes again. And the level of sheer cosmic chaos. He will bring it all to nothing in the single power of His coming. It will retreat away from Him. Why? Because it is covered by sin. It is tainted by sin. It can't stand by Him. And so it flees from Him. All of the cosmos is pressed up, rolled up, like it said in Revelation 6. We've seen this over and over again. Revelation 6, 12-17. When He opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moons became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Same picture. We've already seen these over and over again. Same picture. The earth retreats away from it just like the wicked people of the earth seek to do. They seek to run and hide from the Holy One who has come to bring judgment, to bring purifying, cleansing to it all. Revelation 16, 19-20 The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, what Peter is saying there is stop selling your soul for things that are going to perish. Stop giving yourself to things in this world that won't be here on the day of judgment. We await a new heavens and a new earth. That is what we hold out for. We don't put our hope here. We don't sell our souls for things here because it will dissolve away in a minute as He comes in glory. The brightness of His glory will melt away the cosmos as we know it. What did that look like? I have no idea. I have no idea. And I think to try to say how I think it would be would be only a wicked thing to you. Because it will be far more intense, far more beyond all imagination than anything I could describe. 
When he comes, all that is known will be immediately changed. Everything that we now find in security and safety in the order of this cosmos that he has given by common grace to ensure seasons and times will be in an instant evaporated by the immensity of his glory. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 through 45. In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. That comes at the end of Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of statue that is built by, and, and represents many empires that will come and rule the world. But it ends with a new kingdom that God will raise up under a son of man, which will bring all of those kingdoms, all of those empires to absolute rubble. And it alone will stand forever. And that is what is going to be the truth here as well. The only things that are that will last forever is that which is built on the cornerstone of Christ. Everything else, everything else will be lost. What are you built on? What foundations are you tied to today? If it's anything other than Christ, my friend, it doesn't have a chance of standing when Christ returns. We then see in verse 12 through 13 the standard of his perfect judgment. The standards and and what it is that he will use to judge men by. We're told in verse 12 through 13, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. I'll stop there for now. What's amazing here about this is it's very important. There are some views, primarily the dispensational views, some of the premillennial views as well, that argue that the great white throne judgment is a judgment that is for unbelievers only. That only unbelievers will stand here. That there won't be any believers or saints at the great white throne judgment. Now, there's a few reasons why that that must be seen as false. First, the universality of the judgment is clear. right? Secondly, it's important to know that will believers stand before the throne of God? Yes, but for a different purpose. We will still be there at the judgment. It will just be a judgment for reward rather than damnation. Secondly, if there are no believers here, if there are no saints here, The purpose of having the book of life mentioned is absolutely stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Why have the book of life mentioned here and those whose names are written in it if there is nobody there whose name's written in it? Right? That that, that doesn't make much sense. That would be a very redundant point to make if there's only non-believers who are here being judged to eternal damnation. What you'll often hear is that there's a difference between the Bema seat judgment and the white throne judgment. That, That is not true at all. 
what they've tried to do is they've looked at these multiple series of judgments in Revelation and says, well, there must be different judgments. And the answer is no. They're the same judgment, just being told different times over in recapitulation. The great white throne is the ultimate one. And here we see the general resurrection. This is when all peoples, believers and unbelievers, are raised bodily. It is a universal judgment. That means that it not only includes all humanity, but also all wickedness. And we see this in the descriptions. It says the great and the small, that is of all the righteous and the unrighteous, will be before them. That's all humanity from the sea. Now, these could just be meaning basically anywhere that there were dead, anywhere that people died, anything that might be a place of chaos and disorder, it will give up towards the judgment. And that's partly true. But I think the reason why it mentions the sea here is because what rises from the sea, and the answer is, is evil, wickedness. And I think the idea here is that this is a picture of all those demonic forces of evil that are now going to be judged. And the reason why it's important to note that is because when we get to the new heavens and new earth, one of the first things we're going to see is there was no sea there. There was no wickedness, no evil. So you have all humanity, you have all evil, and just to make sure that we understand that all of it's getting judged here, even death and Hades, not only give up their dead, but they give up themselves. Death and Hades. Death which ushers men to Hades, to the grave, and Hades where those spiritually unrighteous are kept in that intermediate state, which we talked about a few weeks back. All of it is brought before the throne of God. No one is not standing before the throne of God at this final judgment. Everyone is there. And we see this throughout the Scriptures, this picture that it is a universal judgment that takes place when the King returns. Not just one for the unrighteous. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1-2 through there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So it's very clear. It's going to be both believers and unbelievers there on this day of judgment. He brings the separation. John chapter 5 verse 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Right? The resurrection is the same. The purpose of the resurrection will be different. The resurrection is the same. The purpose of the resurrection will be different. We will get a resurrection of eternal life. They get a resurrection of judgment, of damnation. Right? So this is what's happening. All of humanity, all of the wicked powers and principalities, all of creation, all of death and Hades 
is cast before the judge of judges, the king of kings. We are told that the books were opened. Now, in these books, the first set of books we're told about, we find within them every deed, thought, and action of all humanity. You've got to imagine, if these are literal books, I don't think the cosmos could fill them. I, I don't think there are literal books. Now, maybe there will be, I, I, but I don't think so. I think the books are simply metaphors of God's unfailing memory. And they will be laid before you on the day of judgment. For those who are being judged, who are not in the Lamb's book of life, every negative thought, every sinful heartbeat that you have in your 20 years to 100 years will be put before your eyes so that by the time the verdict is read, you will amen the perfection of the judgment. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the thought of having every sinful word every sinful thought recorded and put before my eyes. But that's the judgment that will be for those not in the Lamb's book of life. Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 is the first time we get a picture of these books. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. This is the Ancient of Days. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court set in judgment and the books were opened. You will stand for those not in Christ. They will stand utterly naked with every single thought exposed before them in the courts of heaven. And the verdict will be without hesitation. I never knew you. You are guilty. And that is more somber than anything you could ever imagine. You chose creation over me. You chose you over me. You chose death over life. You chose the flesh over faith. And his judgment will be perfect. It will be perfect. But praise be to God, there's another book. We're told there's another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, we've already seen about this book of life, Daniel 12, 1. That's, that's for those who are the faithful followers of the Son of Man. That's where their names are written. But we've also seen this in Revelation already through these recapitulating cycles. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, talking about the beast, 
everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17, 8. The beast that saw you was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and it is not and is to come. Right. So it's the worshipers of the world, the worshipers of the beast that reveal themselves as those not being written in the book of life. Why? Because those who were written in the book of life. Go after who? They go after the Lamb. They go after the one who sealed them by His blood. You see, the book of life, my friends, is a purchase registry of every single person that the Lord has effectually redeemed at Calvary. The blood has signed your name as purchased. And like we sung this morning, it reads clearly, paid in full. Paid in full. All debt paid. All sin removed by the blood of the Lamb. This is the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, written before the foundation of the world, with wherein that covenant of redemption, the Father and the Son declaring the reality of every sheep, of all of those sheep that the Father gave to His Son, who the Son came to the earth and died for in absolute perfect redemption upon Calvary ensuring that their names would be forever sealed in His book, never to be blotted out because of His perfect work on their behalf, of which we saw this morning He was absolutely resolved to bring to pass. Those in the book of life will be there. We'll talk a little bit about what that will look like for them. But everyone will be judged. Everyone will stand before the throne of King Jesus. The nature of that judgment will be the only thing that differs. Will your judgment be one where the full accord of every sinful thought and deed is laid before you and a guilty verdict is read? Or will yours be son, daughter, you have been bought By the blood of the Lamb. I know you. You are mine. For you bear my righteousness. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the only options at this judgment. And the only difference between them is one was covered by the blood. And the other was not. Everyone was judged. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now the reason that's important is because Paul's writing to the church at Rome there. He's not just trying to like scare them into being better people. No, they will have to stand and give account. And my friends, though your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, though you are certain and guaranteed of an eternal glory, when the Lord begins to move His sheep through this process, it will be a process of final sanctification leading to glorification. And that final sanctification will be a period of immense instruction for you and I. Where He will take our deeds as Christians. And yes, He will reward us for faithfulness. But He will also teach us regarding faithlessness. And for us pastors, we will be held accountable for how we treated His bride. And of all the things that scares me the most, that one is up near the top for me. Not because I'm scared in the judgment sense. Because I never want to have to stand before my king and say, I'm sorry, I know you sent them to me and I treated them bad. I didn't love them with the same passion you did. You sent me those herding sheep and we pushed them away. You need to pray for your pastors and elders. All of them out there. Because Hebrews 13 makes clear, they will be held accountable for you. That's why we believe in the necessity of church membership. I can't be accountable for the saints of First Baptist Anchorage. But I have been called to be accountable to every soul that I should shepherd here at Hillside Baptist Church. And don't take that lightly. And the Lord will use this time as a means of sanctifying me. You remember this? Yeah, I know. But this is what I wanted you to do. And this is why. Or this is why this happened. But look how I still worked it for my glory. It will not be a time of pain or somberness at that moment. It will just be a time of loving instruction where the master leads his sheep into one final element of discipleship before carrying them into glory forever. My friends, it is clear though that humanity will be judged according to their deeds. There is not, there is no contradiction in the Bible regarding this. You will be judged according to your deeds. Every one of us, every one of us. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 to 11. He will render for each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth and obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace... For everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. 
So, if we are judged on the basis of our deeds, then how is it that we, who are sinners to the core, whose deeds are nothing but filthy rags, how is it that our simply being written into the Lamb's book of life is going to protect us from this judgment against our deeds? And here's the answer. The book of life is not just a book of names. It is a book of deeds. They're just His. The book of life has your name, but it has His deeds. So that when your name comes up in the throne room of heaven, you will be judged in accordance with deeds. They just aren't yours anymore. They're His. Praise God, they're His. This is the beauty of what happened when you were justified by faith. When you were justified by faith, already your eternal verdict was settled in heaven. So that your name, now forever established by the blood of the Lamb in the book of life, is forever established there. But it wasn't just that all your sin and your debt was removed, that it was paid in full. It's that all of His righteous deeds that were written in that book of His perfect faithfulness throughout His life is now read as being your deeds. Your righteousness or excuse me, His righteousness imputed on your behalf. Your filthy rags washed away. So rather than dressed in filthiness, standing naked before a holy God with only your deeds to render a guilty verdict, you stand before God covered in the white robes of Christ's righteousness, whose deeds you are now judged by. And because you are judged by His deeds, there is only one verdict. You're innocent. You are right before me. This is the beauty of justification. This is why there is the Roman Catholic heresy of purgatory. It's because they do not believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They believe in what is called the infusion of Christ's righteousness. That as you faithfully fulfill the sacraments of the church, seven within the Roman Catholic Church, that each time that you go and faithfully perform them, a little bit more of Christ's righteousness is added to you. However, if you sin, you lose some of it. If you mortally sin, you lose all of it. And what happens is, is the belief is that you need to go to purgatory because no one will have reached the necessary righteousness to stand before a holy God. So they need to go to this false place that they've created, this middle ground, in order for you to go and work your way through penance and all kinds of other suffering to finally merit the righteousness to one day, whether it's 10,000 years or 10 million years, who knows, depends on how bad you were or how, much, how many people actually bought some money to buy you some indulgences to get out of it. 
however much you got to finally get out of there and go be within the presence of God. That is a doctrine of hell. And there is no place for it. My friends, the only hope we have to stand before this throne innocent is to be covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus and to be judged in accordance with His deeds, not our own. And this is the beautiful reality of what the Bible teaches. So yes, we will all be judged according to deeds. The only difference is is if you're in the book of life, it is His deeds, not yours, by which you are judged by. Praise be to God for that wonderful truth. Does that give us license to sin? No. That's precisely what Paul gets to in Romans 6. After laying out those beautiful realities of justification by faith in Romans 4 and 5, well, shall we sin that grace may abound? No way! Right? This reality of what Christ does for us, it produces more faithful living. Because now we have the Spirit of God in us that produces good fruit and good deeds and good works. That's Paul's whole argument in Titus, right? So, this is why you are still going to have that period of instruction regarding how you treated your brother, how you loved your neighbor as a Christian. Because in all of it, the Lord will use it as a sanctifying purpose. That sanctification bringing us to the moment of full glorification as we are instructed faithfully by the Lord. So this is the judgment. All of mankind is there. Separated by the righteous and the unrighteous. Those in the book of life and those who are just merely written in the books. That is those who are going to be judged according to their deeds and merits. And those who are being judged on the basis of Christ's deeds and merits. And then we see the outcome. Verse 14 and 15 of this judgment. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see that word repeated there a lot. The lake of fire, the lake of fire, the lake of fire. It's because this is it. That, that's what really this final picture of the revelation is getting. There won't be anything left to be judged when this is over with. That threefold lake of fire, lake of fire, lake of fire is, is the reality that the full triune God is in absolute agreement with the outcome of the judgment. You're seeing here that first, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. What does this mean? It means death's over with. There is no more death. It's done for. It is judged and cast into utter and eternal destruction. There is no more death left over for those who remain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, 20, uh, chapter, verse 22 through 26. For as in Adam all die, so in, also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, which is what he's doing now, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
And that's what's happening here. The last enemy is getting destroyed. The beast, the false prophet have been done away with. The dragon, eternal torment. Now death has got to go. And it goes forever. Never again will the people of God be subject to the pains of death. It's judged. It's condemned. And it is forever done away with. Death is gone in this moment. Man, that makes me so happy to think about. And we'll talk a lot more about this in the weeks to come, so I don't want to go too much here, but just to know the sting of death will never again prick the people of God after the final judgment. Oh, how wonderful it is to know that in the eternal state, we will never know again what it's like to lose someone we love. Man, how wonderful. The lake of fire is the second death, we are told. This is not to say annihilationism. It's really to distinguish it from the first death, which is physical death. But this is that reality of eternal spiritual death. What is eternal spiritual death? It's eternal separation from God. What is spiritual death? Separation from God. And this is what it is, the lake of fire. Is the lake of fire going to be this five galaxy wide massive pool of just flames? I don't know, but I don't think so. I, I think that we need to continue to be consistent in our understanding of Revelation. And these realities of these symbols. I think of what fire would be like. And I think of fire, I think of just absolute searing pain. Un, a fire that never burns up, but just keeps burning. It just sears and sears without, without destroying nerves, without stopping the pain. And, I, and I, when I think about that spiritually, I think about the reality of we can't imagine in this world, no one can, even the most staunch atheist, what a presence without God is like. It's unfathomable. Everything good that the atheist experiences this life is a reflection of the God he is rejecting. Meaning that what hell ultimately is, what the lake of fire ultimately is, is it's an eternal place in utter separation from God where the only thing that is possible to have is pain, torment, and sorrow. In other words, physical flames would be a walk in the park compared to what it will be spiritually. To know the immense wrath of God and that be the only reflection you have of Him. Your sin put before your eyes day after day, second after second, moment after moment for all eternity. Every time you rejected the rescue put before your eyes 
over and over again. That is the heart of a flamed, burning soul. This picture, this lake of fire, comes from a real, actual picture, a place called Gehenna. Originally, it was in the valley west and south of Jerusalem. And Gehenna was this massive burning pit where children were burned as sacrifices to the Ammonite god Molech. This practice was carried out by the Israelites themselves in their idolatry. Specifically, during the reign of King Solomon, who did this after he received the 666 talents of gold from the nations. Turned to idolatry after the wealth of the world plagued his heart. We see this picture that is used throughout Jewish and early Christian eschatology, this picture of Gehenna, that lake of fire. And remember, what is the standard by which the king judges? He judges according to those deeds. In other words, he gives you what you gave. The prosecute, the harlot we saw, she longed for blood. He gives her blood in judgment. He brings her to nothing. He gives what they desire to give. In other words, as you offered your hearts to idolatry in the world, going after false gods and wickedness, as those wicked individuals literally burned babies for the sake of a false god, which is still happening. They may not be burning them, but they're still killing them. And it's all for a God of choice and convenience that they still worship. It's just amazing to me how the enemy never, like, he's so obvious. He is not creative at all. He uses the same tactics, whether it was burning the babies or aborting the babies. And abortion is the sacrament of secularism. And if you don't think it's a sacrament, then why do you think they use the language, this is my body? It's the same language as our sacrament. So if ours refers to Christ, theirs refers to self. They will be judged in eternal torment because of their wicked deeds and actions and their idolatry. That is why this picture is used of this as they sought to destroy the world around them for their own sake, for their own idolatry, to pollute the people of God, to to go against the Creator who formed and fashioned them in every way, who gave them life and mercy for an immense number of years, and yet they failed to repent and return to Him, they will receive an eternal judgment for it. Matthew 7, 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John 15, five, John 15, verse 5 and 6, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. What's the difference? Where are you planted? Where are you grafted in? If you're not grafted into Christ, you're done for. 
The only hope and eternal source of life is to be grafted into Christ Jesus. Everything else is just drying and withering, being prepared for the fire of judgment. This torment is forever. It does not end. It is eternal. Now you may say, Blake, that seems really harsh. It really seems harsh to me that God's judgment on sin is eternal judgment. Let's think about this for a little bit. God creates man in absolute perfect goodness. Gives him everything he could ever want and desire. This creature from the dust, he gives him dominion over all creation. Gives a perfect paradise where he can commune with God forever. And lovingly warns him, the day that you eat of this tree, you will die. And yet, even after this creator does that, even after this creator faithfully does all these things, that creature of dust rebels. And even in the midst of his rebellion, God holds his strictest rebuke against the enemy who lured him away. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And that man and woman in that garden are not left naked to die. They are clothed by grace and preserved even in their rebellion. And God, faithfully in His mercy, through the Noahic covenant, provides seasons and times for both the righteous and the wicked. And patiently puts up with them. And yet in the midst of it all, God Himself comes. And enters to his, into his creation. And the very eternal wrath that you and I so abundantly deserve, he took it upon himself. So that everyone who would believe upon him would not perish but have eternal life. So don't you tell me that his judgment is too harsh. When his grace is too abundant. It is so easy to try and play off the eternal judgment and go, that seems harsh. My friends, the only thing we ought to be amazed by is how his grace is so big. Not that his judgment is so perfect, but how his grace is so big. Anyone not found in the book of life will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. They will face the second death. They will know nothing but torment forever and always. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life will know eternity in light of paradise and glory. This is how the judgment will end. With all evil, all wickedness, all unrighteousness, all pain, all torment, all death, fully and finally judged, condemned, and put away forever.
And the only thing left that we'll see beginning next week is glory. Paradise and glory. So here's a few takeaways to close. First, Christ's judgment will be perfectly just. Perfectly just. There will be no one, no one in hell that was truly born again. There will be no one in hell who was truly born again. There will be no one in hell who had a truly repentant heart and cast himself solely on Christ for mercy. Everyone who is in eternal judgment is there because they relied on nothing but the nature of their deeds. And the nature of their deeds can only render one verdict. Guilty. Guilty. Secondly, the book of life contains believers' names, but Christ's deeds. Yes, our names are written in them. Signed and sealed by the blood of the one who shed it for us. But it is not our deeds and those that determine our eternal verdict. It is Christ's deeds. Those deeds have been imputed to you. That all sufficient merit is now your own in Christ. His name has been written upon you and His righteousness has been written upon you. So that when you stand before the throne of glory, what He will see is His own. He sees in you all that He is. So thankful to know. Because I can imagine as I approach the throne of glory, I don't know how confident I'll be. I likely will tremble every step. I might let a couple people skip me in line. And I can imagine that I'll stand before him and I'll fall at my face because I'll be afraid to look. In the book of the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the children throughout the book is absolutely terrified of Aslan. He is fearful of him and he never looks at him. The sound of his roar scares him. One day, after his mother has passed, he is deeply downtrodden and saddened. And he goes to behold the lion. And he finally gets the courage to look at Aslan's face. And rather than seeing a ferocious lion, he saw a smile on the lion's face and a tear in the lion's eye. He saw not a ferocious king come to kill, but a loving king come to bear up forever. My friends, when you stand before the throne of glory on that day, dressed in the righteousness of Christ because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life by grace through faith, you will not be able to utter a word 
you will not be able to say, oh, I know I'm so sorry about my flaws and I, I, I know I did this and I know I didn't lead right there and I, I didn't pray enough and I didn't do any of those things. Before you can utter a word, the king will look upon you with compassion-filled eyes. And he will say, I've seen it all. I've seen every flaw, every failure. But you were mine from eternity. And you will be mine for eternity. Well done, good and faithful servant. And in his instruction, he will reward you and put a crown of glory on your head and dress you in perfect white robes of glory. But you will throw all the crowns at his feet and say it was all because of you, King Jesus. For believers, this is the moment eternal reward begins. But for, uh, for unbelievers, this is the moment that condemnation begins. Why? Because now there is complete and utter separation from the God of heaven with the exception of His wrath. We cannot fathom what it is like for the only attribute of God that we know is His wrath. No common grace, no mercy, no love, no compassion, just wrath. But it will all be over. Death, pain, suffering, evil. The problem of evil and death will be forever eradicated. Never to be dealt with again. John's Cycles of judgment. John's cycles of the tribulations of this present age, the realities of death, to prepare the people of God for what they will face in this present evil age. It's now over. John has seen history's terrifying end. But now he will see eternity's beautiful beginning. And that is where we fix our eyes next. To the glories that will come in the new heavens and earth for all those written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the realities of judgment that you do not pull the wool over our eyes. That you do not leave us uncertain of what is to come. God, I pray that we will have an absolute and utter zeal to go and share the gospel with people, Lord. To be an unstoppable force for missions and evangelism. To make known the good news of the gospel of the kingdom in order that everyone can have the reality to repent and believe put before them. That we, it might not be said of us that it was because of us being idle, loitering our heavenly journey but that, it, that in the midst of our faithfulness, you might see fit to bring revival, to bring salvation to thousands, hundreds of thousands of souls for your glory, Lord. Lord, we thank you for living the perfect life necessary to grant us your deeds, your righteousness. For that is the only reason, the only hope we have of standing secure 
on this day of judgment. Lord, let us live in light of that judgment. And the reality that one day we will stand before you. Yes, it will not be for judgment as we are in you by faith. But it will be for instruction. And Lord, we pray that on that day, there will be far more instances of where we lived for your glory than in opposition to it. So help us live wisely and faithfully for your glory as we long for the day where we will behold you face to face, not seeing a king who is harsh and angry towards us, but as your people seeing a king with immense compassion who wipes away our tears and says, Welcome home, servant. Welcome home, my beloved. Look at what I have come and prepared for you. We thank you and we praise you, Father. We say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.